you informed and inspired. We love God. We ought to be able to talk about him. Getting you started on your day. With the latest in breaking news and information. From the Vatican to the White House and everything in between. It's serious. It's fun. It's your Catholic drive time. And welcome to Catholic Drive Time. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. Today is Tuesday, August 15, 2023, the Feast of St. Tarsisius. Yeah, you thought I was going to say the Assumption of Mary, didn't you? I got you. <laughs> I got you. Uh, don't worry. We're going to talk about the Assumption of Our Lady as well. But St. Tarsisius, he lived in the 3rd century and was a martyr of the early Christian church. In fact, there's actually debate on whether or not he was a deacon. Some people say he was, some people say he wasn't. Uh, but so Pope D- Damasus I in the fourth century wrote a metrical inscription in his honor comparing him to the deacon St. Stephen. You may remember last week we talked about St. Stephen as the model of deacons. Man, Tarsisius was entrusted with carrying the Blessed Sacrament to imprisoned Christians. And one day, it's a group of thugs as we might call them, they saw our him with um, with our Lord, but they didn't know that it was the Holy Eucharist. They thought he had something worth monetary value, and they said, oh, we're going to take that. And they said, give me what you have, because he had this pouch, and he kept it close to his chest. And he was protecting it very dearly, and he was. They, they were thinking, oh, my goodness, he must have gold or silver or precious jewels. And they said, give us what you have. He said, absolutely not. What I have here is too precious for me to give up. And so they mug him and they beat him and they kill him for the Holy Eucharist. Now, this is something that we can keep in mind and recognize that we, too, should have this kind of love for our Lord. So much so that whenever people see the manner in which we treat the Holy Eucharist, that they will look at us and say, This guy must have a mountain of gold there. That person must have the most precious jewels in the world in that box. Because if you had, let me just hypothetically speaking, just hypothetically, I'm not not referencing anything specifically, but let's just say you had a pound of gold, a pound of silver, and a pound of precious jewels. Would you, A, put it in a very safe container that is a place that is... um, set aside for this for these for these precious metals that are worth a ton of money or would you put it in a plastic bin that you got from Lowe's and just think about that for a second not, not, not referencing anything specific just you know as an idea <laughs> so on this piece of saint tarsisius let's pray that we have greater devotion and love for the holy eucharist and that we dedicate ourselves to that end and we pray that all members of the church have this same devotion saint tarsisius pray, pray for, for us, us. Uh, thank you very much. And joining us right now is Rudy Carlos. Good morning to you, Rudy. Good morning, Adrian. It's so good to be here, and it's 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 so true. We really have the treasure, the treasure that everyone is looking for. It's here in the church, in the sacraments. It's here specifically in the Most Holy Eucharist, which is our Lord, his real presence. That is the ultimate treasure. It's worth more than anything here in the entire world, and we should act like it. We should really reclaim that that sort of uh, uh, sense that we have our Lord, our King, the creator of the universe. He's here. Thanks be to God. What a great mercy. What a great uh, love, act of love mm. for our Lord to remain here with us. You know, speaking of, uh, of great love, right now, as uh, we're doing a pre-recorded show, so this show is uh, actually not live mm-hmm. because I'm actually 
as you're listening to this, I am with great love. Actually, I don't know where I'll be. I'll be in Fatima. Uh, <laughs> I'll be in a great Spain or I'll be in Lourdes. Um, one of those three today. Um, but, you know, it'd be, I am, I'm very excited um, for this trip. And, and while I'm on this trip, I, I ask that you pray for me. And I, I will be certainly praying for you because uh, this is, I mean, I think it's good to occasionally go on pilgrimage and you know you and during a pilgrimage mm. uh, we kind of have this like modern idea of like a vacation yeah uh, but our our ancestors went on these pilgrimages and there was like elements of suffering of real suffering on this trip and i can tell you that this trip will be suffering because i'm going with my family <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. It's going to be great. I'm I'm very excited. Um, but I that that's where I'm going to be. I right at this moment, so people are thinking, wait, we had we had somebody else on yesterday, and we had someone else on last Friday. So then, how is Adrian back now? And so no, I, I'm actually where this is a pre-recorded show for the feast of the Assumption of Our yeah. Lady. Now, Adrian, maybe this is the wrong time to bring this up, but Uh-oh. you did receive a piece of mail from the TSA, and Uh-oh. I forgot to give it to you. Uh-oh. Uh, I opened it, by the way. It said you're not able to travel, so uh, I, I hope that doesn't damper your plans a little. You know, I, well, you maybe know what there's say. a way to get around that. You know what they say? Um, I'll just I'll sneak in through the border. I'll just, <laughs> <laughs> I'll just claim that I'm a migrant, and they will uh, let me in, right? So you're going to be in Spain, but mm-hmm. the S is silent. And pain, yes, yes. I was like, <laughs> Spain as silent. I can, uh, I can talk. I can do letters. Uh, pain, yes, I will be in pain. Um, actually, you know, my wisdom teeth finally feel okay. Really, for the first day in a very long time. So I'm really hoping that the flight's not going to be just absolute murder. Mm. Um, I'm very much looking forward to uh, not being in pain anymore. So what'd you do? You just pop the tooth back in, or what? I wish. Oof, I want the. It feels so strange not having them there. It's so weird. But no, no, that's um, it's it's good that I endured that pain. It was bad that I did so poorly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, I'm glad that um, that it's, uh, it's all over. But we'll see how it goes. The flight may be may kill me, but we'll find out. We'll find out. They said that uh, the pressure change is going to cause a throbbing pain in my mouth. So I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be a good time. I would definitely. I have an opportunity to uh, to suffer, offer penance for my manifold sins, um, and Lord knows I need it. But, you know, speaking of St. Tarsicius today, you know, we're talking about the Holy Eucharist. Uh, coming up in the show today, Joe Heschmeyer with Catholic Answers, he wrote a book called The Eucharist is Jesus, and we talked all about our Lord, and the uh, we went over the Old Covenant, and we walked that through all the way to the covenant of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then we took it through to the Protestant errors of the Eucharist, and we even came after that uh, that article from National Catholic Register from Father Thomas Reese, where he says, "Oh yeah, we Catholics, we don't need to believe in that whole transubstantiation thing anymore." Uh, so we talk about all those things with Joe Heschmeyer for Catholic Answers. It was a great conversation. That's coming up in the next hour, or in this hour rather, in the next hour, we're going to talk about the Feast of the Assumption. Uh, today, you consider it a holy day of opportunity. It may not be a holy day of obligation in your neck of the woods, but, I mean, maybe it is. You let me know. If it's an obligation in your neck of the woods, I would be very curious to know. But if it's not, it is a holy day of opportunity, and you can make it to Holy Mass. Go find out when Mass is today and try to get yourself to church so you can celebrate that wonderful, wonderful day. Now, in the next hour, we're going to be talking about the Assumption. I have my friend Timothy Craig. He's going to be on with us to talk about the Feast of the Assumption. Uh, we recorded this um, in the week before, so we kind of say next week, but we meant today. So 
There you go, folks. But nonetheless, that's going to come up in the next hour. And no fear in trimming game show. And so I got to figure out what's going to be placed there. You'll find out, though. I am uh, recording it. So, you know, future things. There's like time travel. You consider time travel. It's already been done on your end. But for my end, it hasn't. <laughs> now, Adrian, are you guys going to talk about whether or not Our Lady died yes. or if she went into dormition? We debated oh, about okay. that. That's literally well, like 15 minutes that's of That's going to be it's interesting. Like, yeah, yeah. So here's a question for you. Did Our Lady die? That's the question. Did Our Lady what die? What team are you on? Mm, very interesting. Well, let's jump into it. There's going to be no breaking news and stories because it's a pre-recorded show. So no breaking news and stories. We're going to jump straight into the gospel after the prayer. And Rudy will uh, chime in with the gospel uh, with me. And we will also then um, jump in to uh, the prayer. So we're going to be praying for your needs. Um, I'm going to be praying for my pilgrimage. Please pray for my pilgrimage. I'd be very grateful. We're praying for our friends, family, benefactors, and all those we promise to pray for. And we pray for the salvation of souls and liberty and exaltation of Holy Mother Church. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. O Immaculata, refuge of sinners, and our most loving mother, God has willed to entrust the entire order of mercy to you. I, a repentant sinner, cast myself at your feet, humbly imploring you to take me with all that I am and have, holy to yourself as your possession and property. Please make of me of all my powers of soul and body of my whole life, death, and eternity, whatever most pleases you. If it pleases you, use all that I am and have without reserve, holy to accomplish what was said of you. She will crush your head and you alone have destroyed all heresies in the world. Let me be a fit instrument in your immaculate and merciful hands for introducing and increasing your glory to the maximum and all the many strayed and indifferent souls, and thus help extend as far as possible the blessed kingdom of the most sacred heart of Jesus. For wherever you enter, you obtain the grace of conversion, growth, and holiness, since it is through your hands that all graces come to us from the most sacred heart of Jesus. Allow me to praise you, O sacred virgin. Give me strength against your enemies. O Mary, conceived without sin, pray for us who have recourse to thee, and for those that do not have recourse to thee, especially for the Freemasons and those commended to thy care. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. And now, the Gospel of the day. Now, the Gospel of the day comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. It is Our Lady coming to visit St. Elizabeth. Now, it's interesting that Holy Mother Church decided to choose this passage for the Feast of the Assumption, because you would think that it would, um, what, what does this have to do with, the, um, with Our Lady being assumed into heaven? And so what does it have to do? Well, we think about the fact that when Our Lady came, what was it that St. Elizabeth said? Who am I that the mother of our Lord would come unto me? Now, this is an echoing of King David's words. King David said, who am I? that the ark of the Lord would come unto me. So Our Lady here is being prefigured or a fulfilled as a type of the ark of the covenant, that which held the most precious things of, the, of Israel. Mm. And where do we see this thing reflected? But in the apocalypse, where the ark of the covenant shows up, and then it disappears. It fades from the, liter from the, from the literary device. And what takes the place? The woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars. Simply beautiful. Hmm. 
very beautiful. And it's always funny to me when Protestants are like, no, that's actually not the Blessed Virgin Mary. It's actually just a symbol of the church. It's like, well, it can be more than one thing, first of all. And second of all, then the woman gives birth to the sun and the dragon waits to devour the sun. And so by your analogy, you're saying that the church birthed Christ? I thought the church was the mystical body of Christ. Hmm. Seems like there's a conflict right there. Uh, perhaps that needs to be rectified. And I think it's easily rectified in recognizing the Blessed Virgin Mary. So, and I think the other thing to keep in mind here is the fulfillment of all the prophecies. And so here is one of the most beautiful things that happened in sacred scripture. And that is Zechariah, who had doubted our Lord, doubted that his wife would bear a child. He is able to then speak again. And when he is able to speak, he blesses the Lord. And then Our Lady, she blesses the Lord. And she says, my soul doth magnify the Lord. And my spirit rejoice in God, my Savior. So she's recognizing God is, her, in fact, her Savior. But she's saved from the moment of her conception. Because she is the Immaculate Conception. And her soul magnifies the Lord. Does your soul magnify the Lord? My soul doesn't magnify the Lord. I mean, I hope that in some small way it might but my soul is very dirty. You gotta polish that up a little bit. And maybe, just maybe, I can magnify it just a tiny bit. But Our Lady, her soul doth magnify the Lord. Her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior, who has looked kindly on her lowly handmaiden, on his holy, lonely handmaiden. What a beautiful image. And I always think about holy slavery. You want to be holy slavery because you're gonna be enslaved to somebody. I mean, it's just, it's just the way it is. You're going to be slave to your work. You're going to be slave to your passions. You're going to be enslaved to the devil. It's your choice. Or you could be enslaved to the Blessed Virgin Mary, who has nothing but your good in her mind. She desires nothing but your good. And if you enslave yourself to her, she will bring you to the blessed kingdom of heaven. So today, that is the goal. Enslave yourself to the Blessed Virgin. Offer up your prayers today. Consecrate yourself to the Immaculate Heart. Pray the, a prayer of Novena to the Assumption of Our Lady. You can always jump in right now and do that prayer, that Novena prayer of the Assumption. And thank our Lord for the great gift of his mother, who has now become our mother. And Our Lady Guadalupe said, Why should we worry? For am I not your mother? And that is great confidence. That gives me great confidence. All right. When we come back, we're going to be talking to Joe Heschmeyer on the Eucharist is Jesus. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Hey, Donnie, what are the four Gospels in the New Testament? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And who baptized Jesus? St. John the Baptist. As parents, we're the primary educators of our Catholic faith to our children. And if you don't know your Catholic faith as well as you should, that's okay. Just tune in daily to the Guadalupe Radio Network by logging online to grnonline.com. The Guadalupe Radio Network. Listen, learn, love, and pass it on. This is Dale Alquist with a Chesterton Minute. What is a fanatic? Well, have you ever heard someone defending animal rights as if they have completely forgotten about human rights? G.K. Chesterton says that is a perfect example of a fanatic. 
someone with a sense of a particular truth that is too strong for his sense of the universal truth. He will invoke even cruelty to prevent cruelty to animals. Later, he may even invoke cruelty to animals to prevent cruelty to pit ponies. It is not merely that he has kept one thing and lost a thousand things. He has lost the basis even of the one thing. For a man cannot long remain right without a reason. We must accept all the universal truths so that we don't go off balance with one particular truth. And where do we find the perfect balance of all universal truths? In the Catholic Church. Want more than a minute? Chesterton.org. This is your host, Adrian Fonseca. It's so good to be on with you today. Praise be to God. It's always good to be here on Catholic Radio. Praise be to God. Especially on the Feast of the Assumption. The Feast of the Assumption. I hope I. it may not be a holy day of obligation in your neighborhood, but you know what it is? It's a holy day of opportunity. A holy day of opportunity. So if you can make it to Mass today, I think that would be an excellent thing to, to do. Excellent sacrifice to make. So if you're able... I would highly recommend uh, taking a little bit of your time and dedicating it to the Lord by going out and attending Holy Mass. And I think that would be a great thing to do uh, to celebrate Our Lady. And speaking of celebrating Our Lady by the Holy Eucharist, by going to Holy Mass, uh, joining us right now is Joe Heschmeyer with the Catholic Answers. He just uh, published a book, The Eucharist is Really Jesus, How Christ, Body, and Blood Are the Key to Everything We Believe. Uh, good morning to you, Mr. Heschmeyer. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Oh, praise be to God. It's good to have you on. Now, it's really interesting because there have been approximately a million books on the Eucharist published in the last couple years. And, um, the, and it struck me, I was like, okay, Catholic Answers is putting their foot in the door on the question on this topic. Um, usually when they do so, it's something that is um, a little bit different. Uh, so why did y'all decide that it was a good idea to publish a book on the Eucharist right now? Well, I mean, for one, obviously we have this three-year kind of cycle of, of focusing on the Eucharist that we've been really encouraged by the church. The, the U.S. bishops have, have pushed for uh, Eucharistic revival and sometimes it's called Eucharistic reamazement of really falling in love with Jesus in the Eucharist more. And as we were kind of internally looking at what we had to offer, we realized we had not done, I mean, I was actually sort of surprised. We hadn't done as much as you might imagine in terms of just having books directly on the Eucharist and explaining what do we believe about the Eucharist and why. I mean, this is something that the Eucharistic sacrifice is described by the Second Vatican Council as the source and the summit of the faith. So this is as important as it gets. And so we need to be there explaining and doing what we do to say, well, why do we believe this about the Eucharist? Why is this the source and why is this the, the summit? Yeah, I think that's very good. And I also enjoy the fact that um, the book is being published in such a way that you can purchase it in bulk. I very much enjoyed um, Trent Horn's book, Why We're Catholic. And the and I would I actually purchased, I think, three or four cases of them. I left them in my backseat of my car and I would just give them away to people all the time. And so it's really good to be able to have another something like that um, about the Eucharist, because I think that really is the probably one of the top three objections that you get when it comes to the faith. Usually it's the Eucharist, the papacy, and Our Lady. And uh, that's about it. And you just agree. So if there's like uh, some books that you can just put out there that you can just give away to people, I think uh, hitting one of those top three is always a good thing. Uh, So tell me about your book. How was it formatted? In what way did you um, set it up as? 
Yeah, you know, as you said, there's like a million books on the Eucharist, and I wanted to have something different to offer. And years ago, uh, back when I was in seminary, I was at a at the cathedral in Tallinn, the capital of Estonia, and I was invited to give a series of talks, like starting the next day, to the missionaries of charity. So it was, uh, I had one day to prepare for an hour-long talk on the Eucharist, followed by another hour-long talk the next day, and then actually a talk on Our Lady on the third day. But it made me have to really go to prayer and, and to really dig deep because what was I going to say to these religious sisters that they hadn't already heard a thousand times? They couldn't have just, I mean, they could give amazing presentations on the power of Jesus in the Eucharist and on the role of Jesus in the Eucharist and their lives and in the lives of their community. And so I was really struck by like, what more could be said in this space? What, what more could be said on this topic? Because it's incredibly important but it's easy to just say the same thing over and over and over again. And what I really came away with was this idea that taking the Eucharist seriously, I mentioned it being the source and the summit. Well, the summit means it's the highest point. It's the most important. And this is as profound a presence as you're going to get of Jesus Christ on earth. And so it's easy to see why it's the high point of the faith. But what's sometimes lacking is how it's the source of the faith. So, for instance, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about how we are one body because we partake of the one loaf. So Paul understands in a real way the Eucharist creating the church, that the sacramental body of Christ creates the mystical body of Christ. And in fact, the reason we call it mystical is because it's the body of Christ formed by the mysteries, by the sacraments. And so the church is formed in a real way by the Eucharist. That's a profound theology that we can easily overlook. We can say, oh, yeah, it's great. We have Jesus really present in the Eucharist and not take that next step and say, and therefore, here's a thousand other things that kind of fall in place once you get that, that now we have a means to offer true worship to God. Now we have the means of making the church. Now we have like this incredible presence also makes sense of all of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. It makes sense. And so... Throughout the book, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm taking seven different topics and saying, like, here are these things you may not have understood about Christianity that a lot of Catholics, a lot of Protestants are confused by. And here's how the Eucharist can help us to make sense of that. Uh, and, and they're all over the place, everything from covenant theology to your own spiritual life and, and everything in between. No, I think that sounds amazing, especially considering uh, I think it's a very interesting that you mentioned about the, the source of the faith, because you're right. That's not something that we really consider, something that I really haven't really considered. And I would say, okay, yeah, the summit of the faith, it's our Lord. It's, we're receiving our Lord. That makes sense to me. Um, there's the classic um, example people give where the Protestant says, if I believe that was the Eucharist, I would crawl on broken glass to get yeah. to receive him. But let's go there for a second. The source. Mm -hmm. Why do you say... And I guess well, I'm not saying you say. Why does the church say that yeah. the Eucharist is the source of the faith? And I guess in one sense, if someone was to tell me Jesus is the source of the faith, I'd be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But when yeah. you say the Eucharist is the source, and I'm like, okay, I see what you mean, but uh, expound that for me. Yeah, so there's a lot of different ways you could approach that. I'm going to give you just one. The books, the 27 books that we call the New Testament, are never called that in the Bible. Just like the Old Testament is never called the Old Testament in the Bible. When when Jesus and the apostles quote 
from the Old Testament scriptures. They never say the Old Testament or anything like that. They call it the law, the law and the prophets, the law, the prophets and the Psalms. Sometimes they just say scripture, which just means writings. Uh, but they never just say the Old Testament. The early Christians named these books, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so we should be asking, well, why did they do that? Because the earliest Christians understood that the whole biblical story is a story of God creating old covenants with his people a, and then a new kind of covenant when Jesus comes into the world. But a new covenant is created between Jesus and the people of God, the church. And so if you don't understand that, you don't understand the story itself. That That's the first thing we should say. If you don't get the new covenant, then you don't get the New Testament. Because New Testament is from Testamentum, which was a, a rough Latin translation of the Greek word for covenant. That the earliest Christians understood the whole thing is about this. And so it'd be mm. like reading Lord of the Rings and not getting the part about the ring. Well, you know, the title should tell you the ring is going to be pretty important. Well, likewise, you've got here the story of the New Testament. So you don't understand Christianity. You don't understand the New Covenant or the New Testament if you don't understand the New Covenant. But then the second thing is, given that, you might imagine that Jesus just went around constantly saying New Covenant this, New Covenant that. But in fact, there's only one time in all of Scripture that Jesus speaks about the new covenant, and that's at the Last Supper, hmm. when he lifts up the chalice and says, this is a new covenant in my blood. So just as you don't understand Christianity, unless you understand the new covenant, you don't understand the new covenant unless you understand the Eucharist, because he points to that as where the new covenant is coming in and where it's beginning. And so that makes it the linchpin of the whole thing. If Christianity is about the new covenant relationship with Christ, then that means it's this Eucharistic relationship with Christ, because that's literally where he inaugurates it. And so to say that you don't have the fullness of Christianity without the Eucharist is to say you don't have the fullness of Christianity without the defining moment of the new covenant, which, of course, I mean, if you take Jesus seriously here, that he's instituting the new covenant, a person who rejects that moment or a person who is unaware of it is missing out on something very near the heart of the whole thing. So this brings up a, a great point of topic uh, to discuss because I think many people, any many Catholics, do not have a concept of covenant theology. And it's kind of just been not taught anymore. It's not just it's not understood. And I think an element to this, and I've had this discussion with other people before, where we have we say, okay, we need to give you the good news. But why do you need good news if there was no bad news? So what was the bad news? And we don't we don't start from the fact that we're saying, okay, hey, guys, everything is messed up, all right? Things are really bad. And let me show you how they could be better, though. And that's the problem, I think. And I think that's the problem with not understanding covenant theology because we don't see a need for a covenant. Why do I need a covenant? I think Fulton Sheen said the people don't have a problem with the immaculate conception because they don't can't believe someone immaculately conceived. It's because they think that we're all immaculately conceived. Yes. And so I think that's exactly kind of the problem here. Is, so tell me, when we say covenant, what are we talking about? And what's the point of this covenant? Yeah, I mean, the example I always have in my mind is, is someone like a, a scientist walking out of a lab saying, I've discovered a cure for cancer. And people saying, what's cancer? Mm, <laughs> so mm. I was like, okay, I, I've got great news. But first, I'm going to give you some bad news. You know, this you you don't know about the cure unless you know about the disease. And so you're right that we have to understand all of this in the light of salvation history and in the light of the fall to define a covenant. There are different definitions scholars are going to give. 
But the basic idea is that it's a legal relationship. Scott Hahn talks about the difference between a contract and a covenant, that a contract is an exchange of goods or services. You hire a person to clean your house or to watch your kids or to change your tire or whatever. Whereas a covenant is not an exchange of goods and services. It's an exchange of persons. And that's true both at the individual level with something like marriage. But there's also a real sense in which nations in the ancient world would form covenants with each other, that they were deeper than treaties. It was here are the expectations that I can have from you and that you can have from me. And and it wasn't primarily, let me give you some money to do this thing for me. It was something much deeper, something much richer than that. And so God makes covenants with his people, with Israel. And he does this, we see all throughout the Old Testament. Even though we call it the Old Testament, the truth is there are several testaments. There are several covenants that he creates, uh, most famously with Abraham, but then throughout the Old Testament story. And in each case, there are certain expectations. And here's how you live out that covenantal relationship. So you'll find people today who say, oh, you know, Christianity's not a religion, it's a relationship. Mm. And that's a, a false dichotomy. Mm -hmm. It's both. It's a religion and a relationship. But a relationship, a healthy relationship, has terms to it. It has structure to it. Um, we have a couple little kids and, and their babysitter uh, just had a, a special dinner she was looking forward to yesterday where she was going to sit down with the guy she was kind of dating to define the relationship. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's really good. That's really healthy. <laughs> Hopefully she doesn't mind me sharing that story. She might murder me for, for sharing that. But it was, you know, it seemed like they were both really excited, happy going in. I think they're it probably went very well. But the idea is that when you love a person, you actually long for a little bit of structure. You long for some order to it. And the, we see this very obviously in marriage. You know, when you're married, there's all sorts of things that you know implicitly or explicitly you should or shouldn't do. Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. Do you really believe in a secret catching away of the church called the rapture? The pages of your Bible are empty of that type of talk. So here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Number one, solid biblical doctrine is time-tested. This rapture idea got its wheels rolling by John Darby in about 1830. I mean, have you heard of a third coming? You know you haven't. Secondly, God's nature. There's no reasonable premise in Scripture, let alone in moral reasoning, for the results of a rapture scenario such as this. A Christian pilot is yanked, raptured, out of his jet, while scores of the remaining passengers who are not Christians violently crash to their death. Meanwhile, said pilot is basking in the presence of God. This is absurd, and believe me, this is preached day in and day out. Thirdly, bad fruit. The preacher at your church says, Tonight, don't you be left in that pew alone, while that person next to you gets raptured straight up into heaven. That, my friend, is folly with no foundation. I don't know why I turned on my radio because I've kept my radio off for years. And once I turned it on, I was absolutely hooked. I love the shows with the Catholic apologist. I love the shows with the sort of day-to-day -day psychologist, Greg and Lisa Popchek. I love hearing not just of other people's problems who call in, but I love getting the Catholic take on how to deal with day-to-day -day reality. The Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. You actually long for some order to it. And the, we see this very obviously in marriage. You know, when you're married, there's all sorts of things that you know implicitly or explicitly 
you should or shouldn't do. And so there's a structure to it. And if someone violates that structure, they can cause a tremendous amount of damage. So someone who says, oh, I really love my wife, but I cheat on her all the time. Well, you're not obeying the structure of the relationship. And so you don't, I mean, you can say you love her, but your actions don't match up with that because this needs to be a regulated, formed, structured kind of relationship to be healthy. Well, a covenant gives that kind of structure. Mm. And so when we understand the covenant, we should take those two aspects. Number one, it's relational. So in the Eucharist, God's not just signing a document with his people. He's giving himself to his people and giving himself to us in about as profound a way as humanly imaginable. Right. You know, before you uh, give the second point, I just want to just make a interjection there because, you know, immediately I'm thinking of how kingdoms used to unite not only over this covenant that you're talking about, but also over the covenant of marriage. Uh, The king of one nation and the king of another nation would have their daughter, son, uh, marry, and the two nations would marry one another. Uh, I'm thinking of most clearly the kingdom of Castillo and Leon, and I'm thinking of um, King St. Ferdinand. I I love King St. Ferdinand. He's a huge devotee. Yeah, you're right. um, Yeah. And so these these kind of combining of nations were covenants in a very real sense that you're saying, and we kind of have lost that in, in, in society, and so I can understand how that would be lost in our theology as well, because even the marriage covenant between two normal people has been just smashed to bits in our modern culture. Um, but I'll let you continue. I just had just thought about that. Oh, as no, I, I'm that. actually, I'm very glad you brought that up, because that's a, a profound point, because hopefully people can see, I, I mean, the example I was thinking of was uh, Henry V and, and Henry VI, where England and France are at war. And so one of the ways they try to resolve the war is by having the English king marry the daughter of the French king. Mm. And so that way they'll have a child for whom the royal blood of both thrones is is in their veins, as it were. And, you know, that this would be a way of uniting the two kingdoms. That didn't work as well as it did in the French <laughs> case. But, but you can see this move. And in fact, you, you see kind of the ridiculous... through Queen Victoria. But all of that was related to that thing that you can create peace between people by, by having this kind of covenantal relationship. And there is something profoundly similar to that going on here, that there is uh, the wedding feast of the lamb, that the bridegroom and the bride are coming together, that God and his people are uniting as much as Ferdinand and Isabel, that, you know, and, and so as a result, we have almost, we could say, divine and human blood flowing through our veins. So when you receive the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus in the Eucharist, it is about that profound of a connection that this should make something durable. This should make something lasting. And so, yeah, I think that's a a very kind of concrete case where you can see this is how two warring factions might come together. Well, we were at enmity with God. We were at war with God. And one of the ways he resolves that is in this incredible self-gift and in this covenantal kind of way. Mm, that's interesting. And it's interesting because I'm thinking of the uh, the situation um, leading up to the coming of Christ, where you see the temple destroyed, the temple rebuilt, and this kind of idea of this covenantal relationship between the Jews uh, being put into uh, a giant question mark. It's like, okay, well, like, what do we, what do we do? We have to keep the covenant by doing the actions that are required of the covenant but then the temple gets destroyed. Now we can't do it. And then the temple gets rebuilt. And like, okay, well, then do we all have to 
flock back to the temple? And that's the perennial question of the Jews today is, do we seek to rebuild the temple and then reinstitute the sacrifice? And then do all the Jews around the world have to all flee to Jerusalem? Um, that's a very serious question for them, but it's very easily answered in the Eucharist. Tell me about that. Yeah, it, so this is a, a great question. That whole history, though, for listeners who may not remember their Old Testament, the first temple is destroyed, and then you you have this real problem of, okay, you know, in Leviticus, there's all these instructions about offering sacrifice, but now we no longer have anywhere to offer true sacrifice. So the Jewish conception of worship is deeply sacrificial. So in the book, I actually quote a Protestant scholar, Everett Ferguson, who just says that sacrifice is the language of worship in the ancient world. And that's something we, we often miss because, and I'll get to why that matters in a second, but just keep that in mind that if you were a Jew, if you were an early Christian and you heard worship, you were envisioning sacrifice, which we have in the Eucharist, but many of our Protestant brothers and sisters, the, the attempts they have at worship, it's not sacrificial. And so much of what's happening wouldn't be recognized as worship in the Bible. But again, I'm gonna, I'll get into that in a deeper way in a second. So when you have the destruction of the temple, there's this question, as you said, of what do we do now? And so you, there's some good biblical evidence that people were actually going to the temple site and still offering sacrifice on the ruins of the temple. But you also have the creation of synagogues. Now, a synagogue is not a replacement for the temple. It's a, an inferior substitute, but you're doing the part that you can do without the temple, meaning you have the readings from Scripture, and then you have someone talking about them. And many, I, I already, since I brought up the Protestant-Catholic connection, many Protestants would, would look to the synagogue as a model for what Christian worship ought to look like. Mm. But this was never understood to be Jewish worship. This was understood to be Jewish teaching when the place of worship was inaccessible because it had been destroyed. And so uh, we see in the New Testament a very clear threefold distinction. The synagogue is a good place. It's a place of teaching. It's a place of instruction. Jesus goes in there on the Sabbath, and he reads the scriptures, and he proclaims them. And even when he's not the one proclaiming them, we still find him attending. So it's, it's clearly good. But he nevertheless doesn't do it as a place of prayer or worship. How do we know this? In Matthew 6, we get the only time that the synagogue and prayer are mentioned together. And it's Jesus telling us not to pray in the synagogue. He says, this is what the hypocrites do. He says, don't pray in the synagogue or on street corners. Now notice, even in that list, he's treating the synagogue not as some sacred place of worship, but just as a public gathering place, the way you might treat an auditorium or you know, a lecture hall or something like this, because that's how it was understood. That's not just Jesus's understanding either. That's a common Jewish understanding as well. We actually have a synagogue from the first century with the inscription still intact, and it talks about the place of the synagogue being a place of instruction and a hostel for travelers. So it's a place you can stay. It's also a place you can get together and talk. And so imagining it's something like, you know, some churches will have like the church and they have like uh, the church hall mm. or the church hall may be a separate building or it may be in the basement. And the point of the hall is, well, you know, people need a place to get together and, and do stuff. Well, great. But you don't conflate the hall with the sanctuary. Those are two very different spaces. So you have, the synagogue is a place of instruction. Then you have places of prayer. Now, Jesus prioritizes private places. He goes off to a lonely place. He tells us to go to the upper room. And you can hopefully see the distinction there. The synagogue is a public place by definition. And when you're preaching and teaching, you want to preach and teach to the public. 
And that makes sense, right? You want to reach as many people as you can. But when you're praying, you're no longer just talking about God. You're now talking to God. And that's something you don't need an audience for. And in fact, an audience often gets in the way. So Jesus doesn't prohibit public prayer. In fact, we see Jesus praying at the tomb of Lazarus. But he really encourages private prayer. But then there's something distinct from both of those. And that's the worship offered in the synagogue. And how do, even the, excuse me, in the temple. And how do we know that's something different? Because in John 4, in the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, they're very clear that the Samaritans only worship on Mount Gerizim and the Jews only worship in Jerusalem. And this is a reference to the sacrificial offerings on Mount Gerizim for the Samaritans and the sacrificial offerings in the temple for the Jews. Now, Jesus promises a new way of worshiping God is going to come into the world in spirit and in truth. But that doesn't mean he's getting rid of sacrificial worship. Mm -hmm. It means he's transforming it. And so this had been long foretold in the Old Testament. In Malachi 1, it talks about how from the rising of the sun to its setting, the nations, meaning the Gentiles, will offer good sacrifice to God. And in Isaiah 66, the last chapter of Isaiah, it talks about how God is going to come and gather the nations, and some of them he'll make priests and Levites, meaning he was always preparing to create a new covenant with his people in which even non-ethnic Jews would be able to offer the true sacrifice. And, and we find that all fulfilled in the Eucharist, in the sacrifice of the Mass. And, and we see the early Christians recognizing this immediately. So to give just a couple examples, the Didache from the first century, probably older than parts of the New Testament, although it's hard to date it exactly, mentions, talks about how we need to uh, make peace with one another before we, we offer the sacrifice so that, and then it quotes Malachi 1.11, so our sacrifice can be pure. And then you have First Clement in 96, where he compares what the bishop, priests, deacons, and laymen do to the high priest, priest, Levite, and layman in the Old Covenant. And so there's clearly this sense of recognizing the fulfillment of the sacrificial worship of Israel now in the sacrificial worship of the Mass. And so all of that is this, this profound reality that we would do well to, to understand and to grapple with, because if we lose that, if we lose the sacrificial dimension of worship, we're losing something that's very much near the heart of what worship itself is, which is an offering to God. Mm. No, yeah, that's very, very important. And I think that that really is the crux of the thing is that I always like to bring up uh, Moses uh, going out into the desert saying, hey, Pharaoh, I, I got to go worship God. Like, people forget that. They kind of Hello, just this remember is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. Haven't you honestly wondered, why do all the different denominations break away from each other? Timeline, 1500s, Luther breaks from the Catholic Church. 16th century, John Knox is influenced by Calvin and breaks from Luther, thus the Presbyterians. 17th century, John Smith then breaks away and starts the Baptist. 18th century, Wesley breaks and starts the Methodist. Even crazier are all the scores of non-denominational individuals who break from each other, generally due to cosmic ego and quote, a new revelation. Well, here's the three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Number one, the Bible. Judges 21 says, quote, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which is right in his own eyes. Secondly, physics. Once the dam breaks, water goes where it will. Luther broke canon law 331, which says about the Pope, by virtue of his office, he possesses supreme, full, immediate, and universal ordinary power in the church. And thirdly, my take. Gifted theologians can be just like my fourth grade friend who said, I'm taking my baton ball and going home. 
Hey, Donnie, who was the first pope to whom Jesus said, you are the rock upon which I will build my church? St. Peter. And who is the current pope? Pope Francis. As parents, we're the primary educators of our Catholic faith to our children. And if you don't know your Catholic faith as well as you should, that's okay. Just tune in daily to the Guadalupe Radio Network by logging online to grnonline.com. The Guadalupe Radio Network. Listen, learn, love, and pass it on. No, yeah, that's very, very important, and I think that that really is the crux of the thing, is that I always like to bring up uh, Moses um, going out into the desert saying, hey, Pharaoh, I'm, I got to go worship God. Like, people forget that. They kind of just remember from the Prince of Egypt that it's, let my people go, um, yeah. but they forget that it's, let my people go to worship God. And that's the uh, the thing that's often forgot that this is the most important thing as a follower of Almighty God is. And right if, I, if I can interject mm-hmm. something right there, uh, Pharaoh tries to negotiate with Moses as to which animals to bring. Right. And Moses says he has to bring everything mm-hmm. because he doesn't know what God will demand. And the, and the point there is, we don't worship God in the way we would choose right. to worship Him. We worship God in the way he would choose for us to worship. So a Christian who says, you know, I, I decided to leave the Catholic Church for this other church because I like it better. You know, because I, I, I pray better, my spiritual right? needs more. Uh, th- that is not the way we're, we're told mm-hmm. to approach worship at all. And so I understand it. It's a, a very human kind of way of understanding things, but it's not a divine way of understanding things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Aaron's sons, they get in trouble for this. They offer what the Bible calls unholy fire. They try to offer worship to God in an unapproved sort of way, and they're struck dead for it. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's worth bearing in mind that God takes very seriously that we're worshiping him how he wants to be worshipped rather than how we'd want to worship him. And then maybe if I could give one more example of this, the very first time we see this contrasted is in the story of Cain and Abel. People are sometimes confused, like, why was Abel's sacrifice to God accepted and Cain's wasn't? Is it that Abel offered meat and Cain offered grain? No, it's not that at all. It's that Abel offered the firstborn of the flock. He offered the best of what he had. And Cain offered the wheat from the ground or the fruit from the ground. He, he offered kind of the leftovers to God. And God refuses to accept our leftovers. He refuses to let us meet him on our terms. He wants us to meet him on his terms. And that's the point of that story. And it enrages Cain because it goes against his human way of thinking about things. But we should take that extremely seriously when it comes to worship. Like, am I doing this because I want to or am I doing this because God wants me to? Right. For those who people who say, uh, oh, yeah, I'm spiritual, but not religious, or I have Jesus, but not religion. I think that's very, I think something very important to keep in mind that religion literally is under the virtue of justice, which is to give to God right worship. And so I think that's very important for people to keep in mind. Um, Kind of transitioning quite a bit, actually, I'm going to skip a couple hundred years uh, and jump over. The church kind of starts articulating what we mean when we're talking about the sacrifice that we've been referring to that was instituted by Christ as the Holy Eucharist. Now, they say, okay, this thing that we're calling the Eucharist, what is it? It was understood pretty much by everyone up until very recently that it was, in fact, Christ. But they took a while to kind of articulate what specifically we mean. So let's start there, and then we can get into uh, Protestantism a little bit later. Sure. I mean, so we find very early on the idea of the Eucharist is Jesus. And I I use that kind of language in the book because 
that's kind of the earliest way we we can find it articulated. So, for instance, St. Ignatius of Antioch, writing about the year 107, in his letter to the Smyrnians, warns them about a, a group of heretics who are probably the Gnostics or a group of Gnostics who had denied the Incarnation. But he doesn't warn them about the fact that they deny the Incarnation. That's not really his focus. His focus is on the fact that they deny the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. They, in his words, don't confess the Eucharist to be the body and blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's a great way of, of seeing the kind of litmus test of Orthodox Christianity in 107. Do you believe the Eucharist is the body and blood of Jesus Christ? Not that it represents it, not that it reminds us of it, not that Christ is somehow spiritually connected to the bread and wine, but is the Eucharist the body and blood of Jesus or no? And, you know, this is something where the early Christians clearly say yes, the Gnostics clearly say no, and we find ourselves in a strange situation now that a lot of modern Christians would side with the Gnostics instead of the students of the apostles. Like Ignatius is learning Christianity from John. And so the idea that we're going to understand John 6 better than, you know, Ignatius does, it strikes <laughs> me as as kind of wild. You know, I don't know. It just seems like even <laughs> on a human level, we, we would have the humility to say, yeah, probably I'm not going to get that one better. Yeah. If he misunderstood it that well. Uh, either John was a terrible teacher or Ignatius actually gets what John is teaching because he couldn't be clearer on his Eucharistic theology. And amazingly, I was actually just reading or rereading uh, a Mormon uh, book called The Great Apostasy mm. uh, by Talmadge from about 100 years ago. And in it, he, he argues that, yes, the earliest Christians that we find, like Justin Martyr in the 160s, like Ignatius in 107, clearly believe in transubstantiation. That's the word he uses for it. That what they're describing, even though they don't use the word transubstantiation, clearly is that. Mm -hmm. And so he argues that this proves that the the true church was destroyed immediately after the death of the apostles. Right. But you would have to you would have to basically say that that the apostles either totally failed or were totally Catholic because their students were totally Catholic. Uh, and so you have to conclude one of those two things. Yeah, and I'll even plug in right now the uh, there's a book published by Catholic Answers, um, the apostasy that wasn't. I read that when I was in high school, a excellent book that uh, really sparked a lot of uh, understanding of the early church for me when I was in high school. Now it's very interesting because okay, you now have thrown in the word transubstantiation. Now this word is probably the hot topic once we get to the Protestant revolt, and there it's very interesting because. You have several different schools of people saying very different things. All of them, though, are wanting to say, oh, yeah, it is Jesus. But what do they mean by that? And you start having these things pop up and these debates popping up. So tell me about that little time period right here and what was getting shooken out. Yeah, because if you say the Eucharist is Jesus, and some of the questions it it raises are on a more technical level, what we'd call modes of presence. So there's really a several century long... I mean, a, a lot of the kind of famous fight actually happens in the 10th century, uh, Berengarius or Tours, that there is one school of thought that says the Eucharist is physically Jesus, uh, and sometimes a kind of an exaggerated physicality to the Eucharist, where it, it loses, we would say, the mode of presence or the distinction between what's called Jesus's local presence and his sacramental presence. So when you receive the Eucharist, if, if you bite down on the host, it's not that you're like tearing Jesus's ear apart or, or anything like that. Uh, so you don't want to misunderstand the Eucharist in that way. 
a person who receives a small amount of the host doesn't receive any less than a person who receives a large amount. A person mm-hmm. who receives both the chalice and the host is not actually getting more of Jesus. And that takes some explaining. And, and we actually find the church doing that work of explaining throughout the century. So one of the best works on this is actually from the fourth century uh, with St. Gregory of Nyssa. And, and so it, this is not something new in the 10th century. This is a perennial question of how do we explain these kind of modes of presence? Because there are all of these points in the New Testament where we can talk about Jesus being present in some way. Mm-hmm. So you've got on the one hand, Ephesians 1 talks about how all creation is made through him and he sustains everything and keeps it all in being. So God, including God the Son, he's omnipresent and all creation occurs through him and he holds it all together in his being. So he is present everywhere we are, always, always has been, whether we want him to be or not. That's one mode of presence. Mm. Uh, Two, you have his mode of presence in the incarnation, that something special happens in the womb of Mary. Something special happens in the manger of Bethlehem and on the shores of Galilee, where he is among us in a new way that he wasn't before, in a bodily way. But it, this doesn't mean he's actually leaving heaven. This is one of the earliest controversies that the early Christians get into, that the pagans say, if your God is so great, why did he leave heaven? And we, you know, the answer is he didn't. He's present in a new way without abandoning the old way he was present. But there's also these other modes of presence. So he says things like, where two or more are gathered in my name, I'm with you. Well, that's not the same way he's with them when he's walking on the shore of Galilee. And it's not mm. the same way he's with them in the way he was already with them all, individually. There's some new mode of presence we have to talk about here. And so all of that is kind of a philosophical task, you'll notice. He doesn't explain, here's the precise manner of the mode of spiritual presence or physical presence or or whatever else. And so it's the work of philosophers and theologians throughout the ages to try to say, how do we put these pieces together in a coherent whole? And one of the most important pieces in that is, how is he present in the Eucharist that is greater than the way that he's present where two or three are gathered in his name, but is not the same as the way he's present at the right hand of the Father in heaven right now. Because we don't want to say that every Mass is the second coming of Christ. It is, on the other hand, the fullest expression of the presence of Christ. It's the fullest manifestation of his presence uh, until the second coming. So all of that conversation about modes of presence ends up having a very helpful kind of resolution with what we call transubstantiation. Mm. The substance of a thing is what it is. And so the what it is of bread and wine is replaced by the what it is of Jesus's body, blood, soul, and divinity. That is a strange and confusing way to think about things if you're not accustomed Mm -hmm. to thinking about the substance of things. But it's a helpful solution to this problem of how do we make sense of all of the promises Jesus gave us? Right, for sure. And uh, we're running out of time here. And I wanted to get to this because many people would say, hey, look, I get it. I believe it's Jesus. Do I really got to believe in this whole transubstantiation thing? Uh, can't I just say, yep, that's Jesus. I'm good to go, right? Um, why is it important to actually understand what we're talking about here? I think um, Father Thomas Reese had a very famous article that came, kind of made the rounds where people are kind of bringing this topic up again within the Catholic sphere saying, do I really need to understand it in this way? Yeah, so in Reese's article, he suggests that this is just Aristotelian kind of thinking, because Aristotle really famously talks about substance and accidents. But the church doesn't actually use the language of accidents. So Jimmy Aiken has has a tremendous response called, can a Catholic reject transubstantiation? So I'd say this, number one, 
Father Reese gets his chronology uh, wrong on a lot of really important things, that this is not Aristotelianism primarily, that you find transubstantiation being used 200 years before you find the church using Aristotelian categories, uh, and like 200 years before Aquinas. You find uh, Fourth Lateran Council, you find uh, Hildebert of Tours, you find all these people who are yeah, talking in the language of transubstantiation, including popes, uh, Pope Innocent III in 1202, which is, again, still before Aquinas, much closer to his time. But still, it's, it's not, you cannot just say this is because of Aquinas and Aristotle. It doesn't work. But the second thing is all of the attempts to explain the Eucharist without transubstantiation, to find some other way to describe what's going on here, end up being more confusing or heretical or incorrect that they they don't do a better job of explaining. We have never found a better way of explaining this reality than to talk about transubstantiation. So the problem with taking these philosophical categories and saying, oh, I can understand it just fine without that, is that those philosophical categories exist for a reason, mm -hmm. and they don't exist to just sound, make people sound smart. They exist because otherwise you can wander into a heretical understanding or you just have a vague and confused understanding of it yourself. I say the same thing with the Trinity. Someone who said, I don't need all this language of persons and essences. I just can believe that God is three in one. Well, if you if you try to dig beyond an inch deep and ask them, what do you think that means? You'll quickly find a confused and usually a heretical understanding. I'd say the same thing with transubstantiation. The the attempts at creating an alternative like transfinalization have have all failed to produce anything clearer or sufficiently ordinary. Amen. Amen. I think that's a great, really concise answer to that question. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but maybe it is fortunate because now you have an opportunity to go to Catholic Answers Press written by We all know children have a natural innocence and a sense of wonder. Yet our world is full of distractions that can pull families in the wrong direction. But with the help of God and a church family, your children can grow in the security of faith, hope, and love. Weekly Mass provides that critical faith foundation needed in life. So if your family hasn't been to Mass in a while, we'd like to invite you home. Discover more at catholicscomehome.org. Hello, this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. Is the Bible sufficient to answer all questions about Christian living and church life? Well, the answer is definitively no. There isn't agreement on scores of doctrinal issues, such as the effects of baptism, who can receive communion, once saved, always saved, abortion, or how about eligibility for marriage after divorce? So here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Number one, fruit analysis. Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli, who are the fathers of non-Catholic Christianity, did not rid the unbiblical practices they despised, but instead turned out to be the progenitors of some 50 denominations and scores of divergent beliefs. Secondly, natural reason. Well, if the Bible alone is supposed to clarify all beliefs, the very fact that such division prevails is actually proof that an arbiter of doctrine is desperately needed. And thirdly, the golden twins. Sacred scripture and sacred tradition will always prevail as the foundation of all Christian truth, doctrines, and beliefs. Remember, identical twins come from one egg. I actually was gone from the Catholic Church for 35 years. I want to get to heaven. I don't know if I will. I mean, I worry about it. But I not only want to get to heaven at the moment of my death, I want to find as much heaven as possible here on earth. So I need help 
I don't know why I turned on my radio because I've kept my radio off for years. And once I turned it on, I was absolutely hooked. The Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. Celebrating the culture of life. This is the Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. Hi, I'm Rudy Carlos, Executive Director of Digital Development, and you're listening to AM 1430 KSHJ Houston, part of the Guadalupe Radio Network. Radio for your soul. A great feast, and I'm going to call it a holy day of opportunity. I don't know who first said that. I heard it from someone else. I've actually never heard that. Really? No. Yeah. I've heard that. Someone else said it. I didn't make it up, but I can't give them credit because I don't remember who said it. They said... A holy day of opportunity and they kind of use this as a phrase to say you know in many dioceses in the world it's not required to go to mass they've they've gotten rid of the obligation or they've transferred the obligations into your sunday or they've done any sort of number of other things to make sure that you don't have to go to mass but i'm saying no matter what your bishop says it is a holy day of opportunity it's an opportunity for you to be holy and give some glory to the blessed virgin mary in one week's time and so the Feast of the Assumption. Now, the Feast of the Assumption is a absolutely tremendous feast because we think about Our Lady, the Blessed Virgin Mary, who is all perfect, who was immaculately conceived, being taken up into the heavenly glory. And it grants us hope for the coming of our own salvation because we think about our Lord going to heaven, and many people might say, well, it happened to our Lord because he's God. But then we look at the example of the Blessed Virgin, and we say, there is one in heaven that is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, that someone is in heaven that is not God, but is like us. And of course, our Lord is 100% human. He is man, fully and entire. But Our Lady is it doesn't have that divinity it doesn't have that divinity in the same way that our lord does and so it's a, almost a greater hope in seeing our lady a present in heaven with her body so i think it's a very beautiful thing to meditate upon and something that we're going to discuss um extensively but mr timothy you were talking about our friend uh, gk chesterton um, we play Chesterton minutes throughout the show typically, and honestly, I, I should I've read less Chesterton than I would want. I want to read more Chesterton, uh, but you were telling me that he wrote a poem yes. about the Assumption. Tell me about this poem. Yeah, no, I mean Chesterton is one of my favorite writers of all times, and he writes this poem called Regina Angelorum. It's in a book he wrote of a collection of Marian poetry called The Queen of the Seven Swords. All of it is beautiful. I'd recommend you read all of it. Some of my favorite poetry of all time. But he writes this poem reflecting immediately after the Assumption. Our Lady is assumed, called into heaven, and crowned Regina Angelorum. Um, I just want to maybe read the last two stanzas and uh, kind of reflect a a little bit on it. Uh, So in the last two stanzas, once again, you should go read the whole thing. But uh, he begins, 
But ever she walked till away in the last high places, one great light shone from the pillared throne of the king of all that country who sat thereon. And she cried aloud as she cried under the gibbet, for she saw her son. Our lady wears a crown in a strange country, the crown he gave, but she has not forgotten to call to her old companions, to call and crave, and to hear her, a man might arise and thunder on the doors of the grave. So he's reflecting on this when Our Lady reaches heaven and sees her son crowned gloriously, who she saw previously on earth, you know, suffering on, on the cross. And uh, kind of this interesting last uh, stanza, uh, to hear her calling, a man might arise and thunder on the doors of the grave. Um, there was one kind of reflection I was reading, and I was talking about how Our Lady is a fulfillment of Christ's promise to raise us from the dead. And I thought that was fascinating with what Chesterton says, that, you know, it is to her call that we rise and thunder at the doors of the grave, that it's to obey the call of our mother. Um, think about what Christ said, you know, unless ye be like children, ye shall not enter the kingdom of God. And what do children, who, are, who do children listen to? I can tell you with my son, he doesn't listen to me. He <laughs> listens to his mom. His mom calls, anything happens, he goes to his mom. Um, and so I think it's a very interesting reflection that it's at the call of our mother that we too will arise and thunder to be released from our graves at the end of all time. Yeah. You know, one thing that I like to think about when I think of the assumption is the angels. Yeah. Because the angels would have been present there at the Assumption. They would have gathered around and imagined the joy in the angels, the rejoicing in heaven, waiting to draw Our Lady up. And there's this beautiful painting of done by Fra Angelico of the Dormition of Our Lady and the Assumption of Our Lady into heaven. And it's something beautiful because you see that Our Lady is there laid down. And all the apostles surrounding. But then there's Christ holding a miniature Virgin Mary. And you may think, okay, why is there a miniature Virgin Mary? Like, it's not a baby Mary. It's a, just her, but shrunk. And the iconographers will comment on this and say that they depicted Our Lady as small there because it was as if she was an infant. As she was an infant into the new world, into the new heavens, into heaven into new life and she's taken up and then the image kind of expands and there's all the heavenly court the angels playing their instruments the angels rejoicing and then the trinity welcoming her into the kingdom of heaven and this is a beautiful image to think about to meditate upon especially when we think about the dormition now Timothy, what are your thoughts about the difference between like uh, the dormition the assumption we had this conversation in the past we have yes um for those who aren't familiar, there's uh, kind of a difference in theology or perspective between the Eastern churches and the Western church. And the Western church, and I didn't even know about this controversy until maybe five or six years ago, but there's always been the assumption that, no, not, <laughs> not, not, no, no pun intended, um, <laughs> that Our Lady never died, that she, you call it the dormition, that she fell into a deep sleep, and then she was assumed body and soul into heaven, having never tasted death. However, in the Eastern Church, they have a slightly different take on it. They still believe, of course, in Our Lady's bodily assumption and all that, but they hold that she did share the same death that her share in death as her son did, 
and that after dying, she was resurrected, her soul restored to her, and she was assumed body and soul into heaven. Now, um, I yeah. personally like the death of Our Lady. I like the idea that Our Lady died. And the reason why is because the tradition that the East has is that Our Lady was given an option at the end of her life, that Our Lord appears to her and tells her, we can take you into heaven, as is your right, because death is a punishment due to sin. Our Lady, who was immaculately conceived, never committed even a venial sin her entire life. But our Lord asked her, what would you like to do? And our Lady, being the holy woman that she was, giving that great fiat, be it done unto me according to thy word, she says, I would like to be conformed to my son in all things. And so she says, I want to be conformed to my son in all things, including death. And death, many people don't realize this, is the greatest pain that anyone could ever experience. The greatest pain anyone could ever experience. Why? Because it's the rending of the body and the soul from each other. You're torn asunder. And that's the greatest pain. In fact, our Lord cries out as he's giving out, as he gives up the ghost, as he dies. And so our lady endures that pain unnecessarily where the rest of us earn that pain. Our lady took it on willingly. And then she's resurrected and assumed into heaven in the same manner as her son. I think that's a very a beautiful way to think about the assumption. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I have perhaps a slightly different take. I think it's a beautiful theology that the East has in that regard. And I, I know there's a certain uh, perhaps attraction to that idea as well, that of course Our Lady would want to share in everything that our Lord went through as well, including death. She suffered all of the sufferings that he suffered. But of course, you know, as we know, she did not die at the crucifixion physically. Uh, but perhaps she would have desired to share in that death of her son as well. Um, however, I do think that there is something beautiful about uh, the dormition of Our Lady. Actually, I kind of want to return to Chesterton for a moment. He speaks in, in Our Lady, in The Queen of Seven Swords, he has another poem, uh, where he talks of the old Adam and the old Eve. And how when Adam dies, he, our, uh, God you know, says, oh, man has fallen but I will resurrect man, you know, but no one is worthy to bear this resurrected image except myself. I am the one who will undertake this yoke who will redeem man. But he looks upon woman and he says, you know, this beautiful thing that I have created, I cannot bear but to recreate her out of the same red clay. So you have the new Adam who is God. Jesus, of course, is God. And then you have Our Lady, the most perfect creation that God has ever created and ever will create. However, she is not God. She is pure human. She is humanity as it was meant to be. And we have to remember that mankind as it was meant to be shall not taste death. So I think there is also a beautiful recognition in the theology of the Dormition that man was not meant to die. God died, Jesus died once and for all, and that Our Lady is the first fulfillment of this promise, that man was not meant to die and that man shall be redeemed. I think there's a, a beautiful recognition there. If you also think about like St. Paul talking about how, you know, for Christians, death is merely sleep. And for Our Lady, this, in, at least in the theology of the Dormition, is literally true. She did not die, but rather slept awaiting for the resurrection. And it's a sign that we shall do the same. Um, I personally, I love that theology in that regard. 
Hmm. Well, you make a uh, you make a good case for it, is what I'll say. I'll say you make a good case. <laughs> um, you know, I'll check. I would recommend checking out. Uh, just giving myself a plug, kind of. The <laughs> I did a video series, a two part series on the Assumption of Mary, uh, with America Needs Fatima. So if you go to the YouTube channel America Needs Fatima, the Assumption of Mary video came out today, and then the second part comes out on the Feast of the Assumption. So if you want to check out that video i i would be grateful i think it's uh well done if i do say so myself yeah. i've already listened Pat to at least part of the first part and it, <laughs> yeah. it was pretty good there you go well, uh, there i you need go. to finish it but uh yeah and well there you go so uh, endorsed. endorsed there we go, there you go. endorsed by uh, timothy craig i'll give you uh your money later too <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, but it's a it's good though because the idea here of our lady being in heaven is that she can in fact grant us many graces because she is in heaven. And we think about that in ancient times, the, the people referred to the Feast of the Assumption of Our Lady as a Feast of Our Lady of Glory. Because they understood that the Assumption of Our Lady was not merely the physical event of her living this earth after the resurrection by virtue of her divine son, but it was also her glorification. And Timothy touched on this when he was talking about the poem. Our Lady was then coronated. As queen of heaven and earth. And the dogma that people say is going to be the fifth Marian dogma that people are wanting to be proclaimed is Our Lady as mediatrix of all graces. Now, why is that something that she would want to be referred to as? Well, the reason is that Our Lady as queen of heaven is the dispenser of all the graces, the treasury of heaven. And we look at the Davidic kingdom, where King David was the king, or rather, we could look at his son, rather, Solomon was the king, right? Who was the queen of the Davidic kingdom? Was it Solomon's wife? If so, which wife? Remember, Solomon had many wives. He was unfaithful to the teachings of God, and he took on himself many wives, the pagan wives, the Jewish wives. Which wife was it? No. It was actually his mother. It was the queen mother. One might say it was the Gibirah, the queen mother, the one who, whenever Solomon sees her, he knelt in front of her. And that when many people wanted favors from Solomon, who did they go to? They went to Bathsheba. They went to the mother of the king. And so after our lady who is so unknown in her life because of her humility. She has a great role after the death, after her death or after her dormition, rather after her assumption. And she then shares in the glory of heaven. So there's something too, that we can keep in mind. Something that we can meditate upon during this time of the assumption leading up to the assumption, but we're going to go to a break. When we come back, well, normally we go into our game show. We're not going to have a game show today. Instead, instead, Adrian, we're going to have a conversation with Lisa Phillip and Dave Palmer, the executive director of our Dallas station here at the GRN. It's going to be a wonderful conversation about how God has a plan for us. Even in the most difficult moments of our lives, God is working through us. Stay tuned. Hello, 
this is Steve Gleason with your one-minute tool for Catholic evangelism. Here's the question for your non-Catholic friend. In your view, was the Virgin Mary simply an obedient woman who willingly gave biological and maternal matter to Jesus and therefore has been given undue adoration? So here's your three best friendship tools for Catholic evangelism. Number one, the Bible. The Virgin Mary is in the first book of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, all through the Gospels and close to 15 other typologies throughout Scripture. Secondly, the Ark of the Covenant. It was the most revered object in the history of the children of Israel. That ark carried the presence of God. Well, goodness, the Virgin Mary did not just carry the presence of God. She carried God himself. Thirdly, something to think on. If God is a father, he is, and we are known as his children, we are, and the body of Christ are called brothers and sisters, they are. Wouldn't God provide a mother for his church? He did. So here's an idea. Ask a wartime veteran whose soldiers cry out for in a moment of fear. That's right, their mother. Mother Mary, pray for us. Ever feel like life's just too much? Maybe it's time for a change. God offers us relief and hope. So if you're feeling like you need more peace today, begin at catholicscomehome.com. I used to wonder if God really cared about me. Then I started praying and going to church. I realized that God in my life was the difference between occasionally being happy and finding lasting joy. If you're looking for something more, check out catholicscomehome.com. I, I just want to uh, introduce our guest because um, a friend of mine by the name of Mary Creason emailed me a, a, a couple weeks ago and said, you got to meet this uh, Lisa Phillips. She's really amazing and uh, do an interview with her. So I invited her in. We're talking about her life and, you know, some hardship she went through. She's from Chicago and takes this trip down to Peru. And then in the, in the course of the interview, she's like, you know, and then I had this uh, radical encounter with Christ. And it just kind of stopped me in my tracks. And I was like, whoa, let's talk about that. So anyways, uh, we want to uh, talk about that. And we can talk about other things as well. We're just going to chat until the top of the hour. And we've got 30 minutes to do it. And so, Lisa Phillip, welcome. Thanks for coming back. Thank you. It's really yeah, great to be here. Yeah, there we go. Okay. All right. Well, um, uh, so tell, tell us uh, about your, your story. I know we talked about it a few days ago, but we've got a new audience now. You had some pretty rough things happen in your life. Uh, what, was, what was it about, maybe 10, 15 years ago? Or? Uh, it was in 2006 and 2007. Okay. So, okay. what, 16, 17 yeah. years ago yeah, 16, now. So, quite a while. Years ago. Okay. Yeah. So, you were up in Chicago mm-hmm. and you were married and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, working in the church. And, uh, and uh, no, no, you actually had a job in corporate America. No, at America, that time right? I was working in corporate America. Yeah, correct. Okay. Yeah. So, tell us, to kind of bring us through what happened. So, I was. Um, you know, baptized as a Catholic and made my first communion and, but didn't really, um, live out the faith and just came from a good home, had a decent life and eventually got married in the Catholic church and married a a Catholic man who also came from a Catholic family. So we're talking about longtime Irish Catholics, longtime Polish Catholics, right? But we didn't live out the faith and not a lot of those people around us were living out the faith Mm -hmm. and got married, had a great job. We both had great jobs, corporate America, had a home, thought everything was great. And then my husband, I was exposed that my husband was involved in this adulterous relationship. And that just really crushed me. And the first thing that I did by the grace of God after that was exposed was that I went to confession 
And it was my only second time ever being in confession mm. since I made my first confession as a child. Yeah. But Interesting I just, now, let me, if I may interject. So your husband is off doing something bad mm-hmm. and you go to confession. So yes. uh, tell me about that. Why did that, you know, I mean, not that we all, we're all sinners. We all need yeah. to go to confession, but um, well, why that connection? I think I knew I needed God now. I yeah. needed him in a way that I hadn't needed him before. I put him in the closet, on the shelf in the back, wherever, however you want to call that. And I, I really needed him now. So mm-hmm. I went to confession, and then I started going back to church. I joined RCIA to make my confirmation because I hadn't completed the sacraments of initiation. So I did that. And all throughout that year, I was I was kind of um, a mess. Adultery is quite the trauma mm-hmm. to, to one's heart and just your relationship you know, with your spouse and all that kind of stuff. And so at, at that time, after I made my um, confirmation, there was other things going on also. Um, it took me a long time to say this, but the relationship was quite abusive mm-hmm. because of the lies, because of the control, all the manipulation. And so... After a while, he would not quit seeing this woman. And so I was like, I need to get out of this to literally survive Mm -hmm. in a way to survive. And so as I was about to do that, I'd realized that the home that we were living in had already been sold and foreclosed in a sheriff's sale. So now I wasn't going to have my home. There was all this debt he hadn't paid. He hadn't paid our IRS taxes for I don't know how many years, many, many years it took me Mm -hmm. to pay that off. So there was all this stuff that had happened. And then... I moved in. I called my parents because when you don't know what to do, you look for a safe place. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, can I come and live with you? And of course they said yes. Yeah. But I was too ashamed and humiliated to go there. So I actually lived out of my car for quite a few weeks. Oh wow! And I would sleep on friends' sofas until one day it just got to the point where I was getting something out of the trunk of my car and I was frustrated and I had to humble myself to go home and admit my life was completely unmanageable. About that same time, a couple weeks later, I then got laid off from my job. I worked at a company where they let our whole department go. So we were any years from like, or 10 years from about nine years to 25 years. They let us all just go. Mm. So now I'm thinking, wow, like I'm in the process of getting divorced. I've been cheated on. I don't have a home. I'm unemployed. I got all this debt. I don't have anything. Yeah. And when nothing's left... God is all you really need. You yeah. learn that very quickly. Yeah. So in that process, I got a little bit of a severance check, and I wanted to take a trip. And so I asked a bunch of friends to go on a trip with me, and they were all like, Lisa, we got families. We, we don't have vacation time. We don't have money, all this stuff. So through some events, I found myself on this mission trip to Peru, and that's where this radical encounter had happened. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah interesting uh, indeed. So... Uh, Lisa, you go down to Peru, you're broken, you got nothing, and uh, what happens? So I think at first, when I first got off the plane, I'm just, can I just be really frank and honest? Yeah. <laughs> it like stunk to high haven. <laughs> I got out of the plane and I was like, oh my gosh, this smells horrible. <laughs> and my friend was just like, welcome to Peora, Lisa. Yeah. And I was like, what have I gotten myself into? And as we get in the vans and the truck with our luggage and we're driving to the parish that we're going to stay at, Everything just looks like run down and war torn. And mm. and I just have this moment of, what have I done? Like, I how could life get, get any worse? How, how could this get <laughs> any worse? But then I, I just made the decision. It was just this decision of, Lisa, you cannot go home. You're going to make the best of it. It's like a 16-hour ride back on an airplane and you can't go home. So enter in and make the best. And so once we just got busy doing work, we were delivering food and we were building homes and 
um, I was just all in. And it wasn't like every moment was perfect. That's not true because every night we would go to Mass and I would be very weepy at Mass. But many things that just happened, I encountered the hospitality and the love of Christ in the poor. Mm. There's a very, very holy American priest that runs the mission that I stayed at. And he was just amazing. And he just exuded this loving glow, this holiness of God that I was very drawn to. Many of my missionaries were other fellow missionaries that were wonderful to me. There was a deacon on the trip that just kind of took me like under this, this, this wing, like his arm was out and just took me in and would check in like, Lisa, how are you? Are you okay? And everybody knew I was a mess, mm-hmm. but nobody asked, but they just loved on me. Mm-hmm. And then there was a moment at a healing mass. So at the parish that I stay at, they do these healing masses and they're quite large, like 1,500 to 2,000 people come out for these. And people really believe that Christ is going to heal, um, you know, through this mass, through their intercession in the Eucharist. And people will hold up photos of their family members and pictures and they're interceding for their family members who can't come. And at this mass, the priest always asks the other missionaries, if you would like to go out, and lay hands on on anybody, you know, I commission you to do so. Well, I didn't know what I was doing, so I stayed in my pew. Mm -hmm. This is the first time. Um, A deacon came over and laid hands on me, and I was so moved by the fact that there were 1,500, 2,000 people there, and he picked me. Mm -hmm. He knew that I needed God. I needed more of God. I needed healing. And, And while that was happening and I was crying, there was a Peruvian woman sitting next to me. She was crying too. I don't know what she was crying about, but she was rubbing my back. I'll never forget comforting and consoling me in her own tears. Mm. And it was just a very profound moment for me. Yeah. Yeah. And is that kind of where you isolate that, that that was the moment, the catalyst moment uh, of the encounter, or was it more just like the whole time you were there? It was the whole trip. And so, you know, all our counter, all of our encounters with God, right. Should draw us closer to him, bring us closer to virtue, draw us to holiness, right? Just like the Gospels when we see people encounter Christ, right? There's a change. Um, I've had many encounters with God over these past 16, 17 years, but there's only a few that really marked my life in a way that I knew I could not go back to previous living. And that first true Peru trip marked my life. And so I started doing things that were different. I left old ways of life. Um, people I used to hang out with, things I used to do. Um, at that point in time, I started to get this sense that I couldn't go back and do corporate America, uh-huh. but I didn't know what I was going to do. Yeah. Um, but I still needed to support myself. So just kind of things like that. It always amazes me when people, that old age, age old question about uh, why would a good God allow good people to <laughs> suffer, you know? Right. And I i have never understood that. It's like the, they say it's the number one reason why people will become atheists or doubt God's existence. And I, I just, it's like, to me, it's so obvious because if you have a prolonged period of you know, abundance and success, you're probably less likely to turn to God. And so God has to, uh, you know, kind of smack us around a little bit. Uh, What would your response be to that about, uh, you know, the God allows bad things to happen? Yeah, I think that's true. And one of the things I think from doing mission work, what is so profound is here in in America, or I should say the West, like Canada, 
um, you know, all of uh, the United States, we're very self-reliant mm-hmm. and we're taught to be self-reliant. Where in places of extreme poverty, they're dependent on God. And that's what makes the faith very different. And so in that self-reliance, we've got God in the back. We, we don't need him, right? Yeah. Like we're good. We don't need them until we do need them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Lisa, we're just about out of time. Uh, it's right up at the top of the hour. I don't know if there's any other comments from anybody. Uh, uh, I think the Lost Creole was saying that he lives in Ecuador uh, in a community that the first will co- um, were considered poor, but they are not. They have God, family, and community, and the first world has lost that. Yeah, God's so. always first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen. Rudy, any other, any other last comments? No, Dave and Sissel, thank you so much for filling in today. You know, uh, this is a, a special recording for the uh, the Feast of the Assumption of Our Lady. And tomorrow, if you t- tune into Catholic Drive Time, we're going to have just our normal uh, broadcasting that we typically do. So it's gonna it's not going to be a pre-recorded show. But I uh, appreciate you guys coming in and Lisa Phillip for uh, all of your time today and giving us your testimony about how you came back into the church and and uh, really found God in your suffering. That's such an important story, and I hope that our dear listeners will take some uh, some something from this interview and 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 really uh, look for those opportunities, those moments where God has called us uh, into a deeper relationship with Him. But anyway, I appreciate all of you guys for tuning in to uh, Catholic Drive Time today. Tune in again tomorrow, as I mentioned, for our regularly scheduled broadcasts of Catholic Drive Time. We have some wonderful things coming up this week. Keep Adrian in your prayers as well, as well as his family as they travel all around Europe. Adrian is going to be out uh, starting this, uh, well, actually, this part part of this week he's going to be out so that uh, he can enjoy his vacation time. In uh, any case, this has been Catholic Drive Time. Thank you so much. God bless you and Mary keep you. Have a fantastic day today. May God bless all of your holy efforts. on your Catholic Drive Time, where it is our pleasure to keep you informed and inspired. Join us Monday through Friday at the same time, right here on your favorite Catholic radio station. Don't forget to connect with us. Just go to facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash Catholic Drive Time. Be sure to share more than just us today. Share Jesus with everyone you meet. Bye now, and God love you. Guadalupe Radio Network now brings you the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass from the chapel at Our Lady of Corpus Christi in Corpus Christi, Texas. Our Lady of Corpus Christi, home of the Salt Community. For more information, visit salt.net or ourladyofcorpuschristi.org. Today we celebrate the glorious solemnity of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary. We offer this Holy Sacrifice of the Mass for all those listening to Guadalupe Radio Network and all of our online viewers. Immaculate Mary, 
thy praises we sing. O reignest in splendor with Jesus our King. Ave, Ave, Ave Maria. Ave, Ave Maria. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let us acknowledge our sins and so prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries. I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts and in my words, in what I have done and what I have failed to do, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Therefore, I ask Blessed Mary, ever-Virgin, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord our God. May Almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, and bring us to everlasting life. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to people of goodwill. We praise you, we bless you, we adore you, we glorify you. We give you thanks for your great glory. Lord God, heavenly King, O God, almighty Father, Lord Jesus Christ, only begotten Son, Lord God, Lamb of God, Son of the Father, you take away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. You take away the sins of the world, receive our prayer. You are seated at the right hand of the Father, have mercy on us. For you alone are the Holy One, you alone are the Lord, you alone are the Most High, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit, in the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty, ever-living God, who assumed the Immaculate Virgin Mary, the mother of your Son, body and soul into heavenly glory. Grant, we pray, that, always attentive to the things that are above, we may merit to be sharers of her glory. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. First reading, a reading from the book of Revelation. God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant could be seen in the temple. A great sign appeared in the sky, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was with child and wailed aloud in pain as she labored to give birth. Then another sign appeared in the sky. It was, hu it was a huge red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on its head were seven diadems. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in the sky and hurled them down to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman about to give birth to devour her child when she gave birth. 
She gave birth to a son, a male child, destined to rule all the nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and his throne. The woman herself fled into the desert where she had a place prepared by God. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have salvation and power come and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his anointed one, the word of the Lord. The queen stands at your right hand arrayed in gold. The queen takes her place at your right hand in gold of Oprah. The queen stands at your right hand arrayed in gold. Hear, O daughter, and see, turn your ear, forget your people and your father's house. The queen stands at your right hand arrayed in gold. So shall the king desire your beauty, for he is your lord. The queen stands at your right hand arrayed in gold. They are born in with gladness and joy, and they enter the palace of the king. The queen stands at your right hand arrayed in gold. Second reading, a reading from the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through man, the resurrection of the dead also came through man. For just as in Adam all die, so too in Christ shall all be brought to life, but each one in proper order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to his God and Father, when he has destroyed every sovereignty and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he subjected everything under his feet. The word of the Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. Mary is taken up to heaven, a chorus of angels exalts. Hallelujah, Hallelujah, Hallelujah. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Mary set out and traveled to the hill country in haste to a town of Judah, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the infant leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, cried out in a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how does this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For at the moment the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the infant in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed are you who believed that what was spoken to you by the Lord would be fulfilled. And Mary said, My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on his lowly servant, from this day all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. He has mercy on those who fear him in every generation. He has shown the strength of his arm, and has scattered the proud in their conceit. He has cast down the mighty from their thrones, and has lifted up the lowly. 
He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has come to the help of his servant Israel, for he has remembered his promise of mercy, the promise he made to our fathers, to Abraham and his children forever. Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Mary magnifies the Lord. She is the magnifier, the one who makes Jesus more. You want more Jesus, you need more Mary. It's about as ridiculous to say that Mary interferes in magnifying Jesus as if I were to ask you to take off your reading glasses because they're getting in the way of seeing the page. Or take away that microscope. It's getting in the way of viewing microbes. Or that telescope is getting in the way of viewing nebula. Or that, that airplane is getting in the way of you and moving on the ground. It's all ridiculous. Mary magnifies Jesus, period. She makes Jesus more wherever he is. Never has it been known that she has ever not magnified Christ. Her soul magnifies the Lord in everything. And that's why the reason St. Louis de Montfort claims the reason why Jesus is not loved, adored, worshipped, respected, obeyed, and, and loved is that Mary has not been fully honored. I would also say that women uh, have not re really been taken their place in the world and they have not been honored and respected and placed on the level that they need to be because women, according to Pope St. John Paul, are the humanizer of the human race. The reason why human dignity has not been respected in the image and likeness of God in every single person from conception to natural death is that women have not been properly honored. Women have not been properly honored because Mary has not. And so by honoring our Blessed Mother in this mystery of her glorious assumption, body and soul into heaven, we are also we are honoring humanity and we are honoring the author of humanity, Jesus Christ, our Lord and God, the creator of all things who became man. And how do you honor the Blessed Mother? It's by imitation of her virtues. And the one thing that Mary did better than anyone was worship Jesus Christ. To have a, a beautiful devotion in the spirit of Mary to worshiping Christ in the Eucharist. The Eucharist has also not been honored. The mystery of the Eucharist is not truly, truly uh, revered the way that it should be. And the bishops are trying to have a, something to remedy that, that International Eucharistic Congress coming up in, in Indianapolis, Indian, Indianapolis in um, 2024, in, in July next year, and let's pray for that, that this devotion to Our Lady can lead to a renovation of belief in the true presence of Christ. Another way we can honor our Blessed Mother and honor Christ and honor humanity is by praying the rosary. When you pray the rosary, you become an interceder for the entire human race. You enter into the prayer of Mary and you intercede for the salvation, the redemption, and turning around of the human race. The, the rosary is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ set to the background of Hail Marys. It is a popular prayer because it is so powerful. It is quick, but it is also very potent. It is a certain way of proclaiming the gospel to your interior, a, a way of imaging what 
prayer is, the contemplative life and the missionary life. Let us honor our Blessed Mother this day and her glorious assumption into heaven, and so honor Christ and honor humanity. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried, and rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. We bring our petitions to the Lord. We pray for the whole church that it may be holy as Jesus is holy. For this we pray to the Lord. We pray for Holy Father, O bishops and priests. We pray to the Lord. For government leaders, we pray to the Lord. For increase in vocations, we pray to the Lord. For an increase in adoration and devotion to Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament, and an increase in devotion to our Blessed Mother Mary, we pray to the Lord. For the sick, the suffering, the poor, we pray to the Lord. And for all of our beloved dead, we pray to the Lord. Eternal and blessed Father, we ask and hear us, for we make these and all our petitions in the holy name of Jesus Christ, and through the powerful intercession of our Mother Mary, as we pray. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Santissima, O Pesima, Dochis, Vergo Maria, Mater Amata, Interamata, O Raha, Oh, hora pro no, oh, peace. Pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. May this oblation of our tribute of homage rise up to you, O Lord. And through the intercession of the most blessed Virgin Mary, whom you assumed into heaven, 
May our hearts aflame with the fire of your love, constantly long for you, through Christ our Lord. Our Lord be with you, and with your spirit, lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God, it is right and just. It is truly right and just, our duty and our salvation, always and everywhere to give you thanks. Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and Eternal God, through Christ our Lord. For today the Virgin Mother of God was assumed into heaven, and as the beginning an image of your church is coming to perfection, and a sign of sure hope and comfort to your pilgrim people, rightly you would allow her not to see the corruption of the tomb, since from her own body she marvelously brought forth your incarnate Son, the author of all life. And so in company with the choirs of angels, we praise you in joy, joy we proclaim. Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus Dominus Deus Sabaoth, Lanisun Celi et Gloria Tua, Hosanna in excelsis, Benedictus, we penit in nomine Domini, Hosanna in excelsis. You are indeed holy, O Lord, the fount of all holiness. Make holy, therefore, these gifts, we pray, by sending down your Spirit upon them like the dewfall so that they may become for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. At the time he was betrayed and entered willingly into his passion, he took bread and giving thanks broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, Take this, all of you, and eat of it, for this is my body, which will be given up for you. In a similar way, when supper was ended, he took the chalice, and once more giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take this, all of you, and drink from it, for this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. A mystery of faith, we proclaim your death, O Lord, and profess your resurrection until you come again. Therefore, as we celebrate the memorial of his death and resurrection, we offer you, Lord, the bread of life and the chalice of salvation, giving thanks that you have held us worthy to be in your presence and minister to you. Humbly we pray that partaking of the body and blood of Christ, we may be gathered into one by the Holy Spirit. Remember, Lord, your church spread throughout the world and bring her to the fullness of charity, together with Francis our Pope, Michael our Bishop, and all the clergy. Remember also our brothers and sisters who have fallen asleep in the hope of the resurrection and all who have died in your mercy. Welcome them into the light of your face 
Have mercy on us all, we pray, that with the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, Blessed Joseph, her spouse, with the blessed apostles and all the saints who have pleased you throughout the ages, we may merit to be co-heirs to eternal life and may praise and glorify you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Through him and with him and in him, O God, Almighty Father, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours forever and ever. Amen. Perceptus salutaribus moniti, et divini institutioni formati, audemus dicere, Pater noster, qui es in genis, sanctifice tuor nomen tuum, adveniat regnum tuum, fiat voluntas tua, Sicut in cielo et in terra, panem nostrum quotidianum, da nobis unie, et emiten nobis debita nostra, sicut et nos demitimus, debitoribus nostris, et ne nos inducas in tentationem, sed libera nos amalo. Deliver us, Lord, we pray, from every evil. Graciously grant peace in our days, and by the help of your mercy we may be always free from sin and safe from all distress as we await the blessed hope and the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Lord Jesus Christ, who said to your apostles, Peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Look not on our sins, but on the faith of your church, and graciously grant her peace and unity in accordance with your will, who live and reign forever and ever. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Agnestei, qui tolis peccatum mundi, miserere nobis. Agnestei, qui tolis peccatum mundi, miserere nobis. Agnus Dei, qui tolis peccatum mundi, donna nobis pacem. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those who are called to the supper of the Lamb. Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word, and my soul shall be healed. All generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Active Spiritual Communion My Jesus, I believe that you are present in the Most Holy Sacrament. I love you above all things, and a desire to receive you into my soul. Since I cannot at this moment receive you sacramentally, come at least spiritually into my heart. I embrace you as if you are already there, and unite myself wholly to you. Never permit me to be separated from you. Amen.
Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in ora mortis nostre. Amen. Let us pray. Having received the sacrament of salvation, we ask to grant you, O Lord, that through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, whom you assumed into heaven, we may be brought to the glory of the resurrection through Christ our Lord. Amen. The Lord be with you. Bow down for the blessing. May God, who through the childbearing of the Blessed Virgin Mary willed in his great kindness to redeem the human race, be pleased to enrich you with his blessing. Amen. May you know always and everywhere the protection of her through whom you've been found worthy to receive the author of life. Amen. May you who have devoutly gathered on this day carry away with you the gifts of spiritual joys and heavenly rewards. Amen. And may the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit come down upon you and remain with you forever. Go in peace. Regina Celi, Letare, Alleluia, Quia quem meruisti portare, Alleluia, Resurrexi, Sicutixi, Alleluia, Ora pro nobis Deum, Alleluia. O most holy one, O most lowly one, loving Virgin Maria, Mother made of fairest love, Lady Queen of above, O Raha. Oh, Rahobis. Virgin, ever fair, Mother, hear our prayer. Oh. The Prayer to St. Michael St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen.
Prayer of Deliverance Almighty God and Father, we beg Thee through the intercession and help of the Archangels St. Michael, Raphael, and Gabriel for the deliverance of our brothers and sisters who are enslaved by the evil one from anxiety, sadness, and obsessions. We implore Thee, deliver us, O Lord. From hatred, fornication, and envy. We implore Thee, deliver us, O Lord. From thoughts of jealousy, rage, and death. We implore Thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every thought of suicide and abortion. We implore Thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every form of sinful sexuality. We implore Thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every division in our family and every harmful friendship. We implore Thee, deliver us, O Lord. From every sort of spell, malefice, witchcraft, and every form of the occult. We implore Thee, deliver us, O Lord. Thou who said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, grant that through the intercession of the Virgin Mary we may be liberated from every demonic influence and enjoy thy peace always. In the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Celebrating 2,000 years of truth, this is the Guadalupe Radio Network, radio for your soul. I'm Roxy from Bed.